0: Good evening, I'm Axis. I'm Mona. And you're listening to The Late Night, a horror podcast.
1: Good evening, everyone. It's August, and as we draw to a close with what we've been describing as and we'll maintain to call the Summer of Strange, <laughs> uh, we'll be watching two more fun and odd pictures uh, that are definitely more in the surreal direction of horror. Uh, Tonight we'll be starting with Sebastian Gutierrez's She-Creature from 2001, starring Carla Gugino, Hannah Simm, and Rufus Sewell. And we'll be following that with Robert Eggers' The Lighthouse from 2019 with Willem Dafoe, Robert Pattinson, and Valeria Karaman. Stay tuned, and we'll be back after the tone. So... First, Sebastian Guterres's mm. She Creature from Two Thousand One. <laughs> which is supposed to be part one of a Mermaid Chronicle. Oh my
0: god. What ambitious titling in that in that that was still like a choice was made that day and wow, nobody followed right. through. <laughs>
1: getting shot oh, out yeah. of it's hard to
0: imagine why they didn't get the the multi multi-movie franchise they were looking I for. I mean I'm a
1: little disappointed as a Starbucks fan as a man who loves mermaids because that I mean this <laughs> this this whole lineup I'm not gonna lie I'm a big sucker for mermaids this is a mermaid task. I mean me
0: dinner. too Hey, you are talking to a girl who watched The Little Mermaid at least once a week for most of my childhood. Um, the obsession runs deep. So, look, I'm going to be the first to say I enjoyed this movie, but <laughs> there are, you know, some 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 things that I think could be improved upon if it were to be uh, redone. Personally,
1: I that's where I differ. I actually, I, I mean, it had everything I needed in in a in a in a monster movie. Aged paper, blurry camera transitions, blurry camera <laughs> angles, overly dark and blurry, uh-huh. overly dark and blurry camera shots, uh, and Carla Gugino, mm-hmm. Carla Gugino, and Carla Gugino.
0: <laughs> okay, that's fair so. enough. It's it is hard to go wrong with that quantity of Carla Gugino. Right. <laughs>
1: so, for those of you who don't know Carla Gugino, what have you been doing with your lives mm-hmm. up until now? Uh, you might <clears> recognize <throat> her from Sin City or Watchmen, or uh, if you're a horror fan, uh, Netflix's The Haunting of Hill House, uh, or as I like to call it, Where's Waldo, the Never Fucking Sleep Again edition.
0: <laughs> also, if you were a child at anywhere around the same time I was, you might recognize her from Spy Kids, or, you know, if you were a parent, but hey, well, oh, age differences are fine. Also, right,
1: <laughs> yes, Carly <laughs> Gugino was also on that too, with uh, Danny Trejo, I believe, right?
0: Mm. Hell yeah, Uncle Machete. Oh what a franchise! Just uh, true delight. Like I'm, I am glad. That's one of the franchises that I am really glad I had growing up. <laughs> but that is that is another podcast.
1: <laughs> so, She Creature is one of Stan Winston's creature feature uh, films. It was one of five, uh, including such uh, fantastic titles as Teenage Caveman earth versus the spider because they would have probably been sued for copyright if they'd actually called it spider-man which is what it blatantly fucking was uh it's just spider-man the nightmare edition and then the love the one whose title really blew me the fuck away most was how to make a monster but it had no relation whatsoever to the 1958 classic with robert harris um so was just this moment where it's just like i have this idea for five monster films okay but like did you guys develop it at all no 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 we're just gonna film (laughs) all that shit and see what happens
0: okay do it first (laughs) deal with the content
1: later (laughs) i mean i will say one thing one thing they got a sick line of action figures because sometimes and i'll definitely say i credit one man for all of that which is todd mcfarlane who is the artist and creator of spawn uh and in the 90s if you're into spawn he had an action figure series. Uh, And yes, I own Manga Spawn. I'm not ashamed. I paid that insane (laughs) amount of money to own it. I have no idea where my Gundam Spawn is, but you know, one day I'll unpack it. Um, And so they were like that. And uh, each figure came with an exclusive behind-the-scenes CD-ROM. But I definitely think that the action figure for the Queen of the Lair, which we see in she creature which is based upon hannah sims uh mm. model uh is arguably the coolest one in the whole set so if you're a horror fan or a starbucks yeah. fan and, you know you want a demonic looking <laughs> mermaid in your office this is the horror action figure for you
0: yeah you sent me the video of it and it's pretty stellar like i'm i'm typically not a huge figurine person but i looked at that one and i was like yeah i'd like that sitting on my yeah. desk like i have the concept
1: art for that too it really is sick oh yeah. I, I, yeah absolutely it was really weird because my brother and i we were also looking at that at, at the mermaids this weekend we were looking at this particular siren and we were looking at the other siren from the lighthouse and we were noticing that there were kind of differences in things and uh, i don't think we're ever going to go there ever again but i just want to make mention of that to you um we kind of <laughs> sat there and they're like Oh so she like has camel toe and and the the Spanish mm-hmm. actress had like mermangina, but it was like elephancy mixed with a rattlesnake and oh my god it was too real. So
0: Yeah, yeah, it was it was interesting. One of the little snippets I found in one of the interviews with Robert Eggers was that when they were talking mm-hmm. about designing the mermaid's genitalia there there's lots of stuff about them talking about it being shark genitalia but they're like our specific theory is that when she's swimming it folds up and she uses it like a fin and i was like oh my god <laughs> yeah because
1: that's how we all want to oh be transported god, no. right i mean all of us want to transport ourselves with our genitals as a way of mainstay yeah. locomotion right yeah that'd be great
0: yeah, yeah yeah i mean like forget you know forget anything else just like forget sensitivities it's just yeah. your pussy's a fit now enjoy it
1: yeah, <laughs> like... you imagine if you're a squirrel and you know, it's like
2: no <laughs> The worst. it's like, just
1: a guy <laughs> with a really long penis who uses a uh, third kind of like tripod thingy, like a, you know that.
0: Oh my god.
1: would take the thing as a horror movie to a completely new place of wrong, and oh my god, I want to forget that as soon as possible. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh,
0: what a delight. What a delight. So
1: yeah. Now yeah, that we've gotten rid of all the children from this podcast, or you, you better not be listening. <laughs> you know. God, I fucking. Oh.
0: Please never let a child listen no. to this ever.
1: No. There's a whole warning. <laughs> yeah.
0: But you know, I I had fun this month. I thought it was fun, because we had mermaids in both mm-hmm. movies. And, you know, in one, the mermaid is the false hope of relief. Whereas in She Creature, the mermaid is so blatantly the fucking threat. Yeah. And I just I enjoy that. As a child that grew up on like cozy mermaids. I'm I'm happy to see some some more uh, some more visceral, uh, violent mermaid. I don't think
1: of her that way. I think of her as a strong, independent female mermaid who's. You
0: know, I agree. I think that, and I think they she can be both. Yeah. She's a woman that can do it all.
1: I mean, so you know, just to let you guys know where the story is, uh, Gugino plays Lily, a singer and performer with a past, not unlike Cardi B's, mm-hmm. who's traveling with a carnival mm-hmm. pretending to be a mermaid. Uh, And co-starring as Lily's Power More is Rufus Sewell, playing Angus. Uh, He did an amazing job as uh, Alexander Hamilton in HBO's John Adams. I always think of him as the actor with the most intense right eye ever. Uh, If a live-action version of Daria is ever filmed, I hope they cast him as Mr. DiMartino. Um, (laughs) But, you know... Uh, everything in their world is going swimmingly until the thing that always happens at traveling carnivals happens. A person who mm-hmm. actually owns a fucking mermaid shows up, tells them they're frauds, and then invites them back to his place for a drink and to show him the real supernatural beauty uh, who also killed his wife. Uh, anyway.
0: Just what you want to show to your She is guests. everything I want in a
1: mermaid and a woman. I mean, God. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's it's delightful. Also, this movie made me had a lot have a lot of questions about like historical carnies. Like I think that's that's research that I'm not going to do for this podcast, but I might do on my personal right. time.
1: <laughs> I mean, it it was amazing effects by Stan Winston Studios. It was, it, you know, it was it was a good idea. Um, I mean, has it aged perfectly? No. It's not the worst movie ever. It's certainly it's not the I mean, look, we're following this film with something that got nominated for an Oscar. But like Right.
0: It suffers by comparison, but I don't think you can deny that She Creature is a fun movie. It's a fun movie. It's that's yeah. Right. It's the perfect kind of like summer nonsense movie where you sit down with your friends and you laugh and you have a good time and there's a mermaid there. And what else could you ask for? <laughs> I mean,
1: I think the thing that I think about most is I like to go to another beach town on vacation with my mm-hmm. wife and we don't get to go back to America, which is called Domburg, which is in Holland. Mm-hmm. And um, there's a legend uh, to the north of that area uh, in a place called Zeeland in the Netherlands and it's called the drowned land and the story is it's really quick it's a town that got drowned because uh one day the fisherman who lived in the town caught a beautiful mermaid in their net and she was married to a merman and he kindly asked for her back and instead the fishermen raped and killed her and then uh the 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 merm people mm. basically drowned the entire town. And so like when you go to the town
0: Good for that Yeah,
1: uh, and when you go to the town, like the entire city is actually literally underwater uh it was submerged in what was called the all saints flood and happened somewhere in the 1500s and every time i look at those woodcuts or think of that story i always think the same Mm -hmm. warm disney message which is don't fuck with mermaids you know it's just beautiful (laughs) you know
0: yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. And also, like, I love that story because it hits on two of my favorite things, which are bizarre submerged landscapes and mermaids. So it's a real double whammy of an Axis-specific story. <laughs> it's really good. Uh, I I wish I had, like, written down the details, but there was another another story that I came upon while I was doing some mermaid research before this of... Oh, I'm, I want to say it was, like... Norway or uh-huh. something. I'll, I'll find it. But of um, a couple of young girls who are out just, you know, pontooning their little boat around after a flood, and they find mermaid, like, washed up on the shore, suffocating and having a bad old time. So these two sweet young girls... They don't throw it back to sea. No, they scoop this mermaid up, put it in their boat, and then they're like, oh no, she's naked. Take her home and dress her in women's clothing. (laughs) And then they just live together. But everything's fine because they're perfectly nice to the mermaid. She never learns how to talk because... I guess sea lungs, but <laughs> if she it just ain't broke, lives the rest it. of her life wearing. <laughs> yeah, she's wearing wearing cute little Swedish sweaters and uh, just vibing with her new human sisters. <laughs> and see, things could work out just I fine. Mean, and, and,
1: <laughs> and we'll get to that later with the lighthouse, right? We're going to talk about that one more time, right? Because I, I definitely mm-hmm. think that there's there's some important important messages there. Um, but yeah, when it comes to she creature. Mm-hmm. Um, I definitely think that it was, it was very quick in 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 every sense. It wasn't a terribly long film. It was a it was, it was probably the first time I saw Carla Gugino. It was definitely like I remember being. I, I think it was two thousand one, so I was maybe 18, 19. I remember looking at her, and thinking that is mm-hmm. probably the most beautiful actress I've ever seen. <laughs> I remember sitting yeah. there, like I was like, wow, she's really talented too. And then like. Year after year after year, I was like, I was right. I was right. <laughs> like, oh,
0: yeah. No, she turns out good. the hits. And she's like, she's doing great work um, in live theater yeah. now as well. Like, she's really spreading her wings and crushing it. So, mm. big kudos she, to her. I'm glad she's living not, it up and doing the I'm good work. I'm not
1: sure, but I think she's going back with, with Mike Flanagan to do season two of his The mm, Haunting series. Mm-hmm. Because the first one was based on Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House and the next one is based upon uh bly manor which is the turn of the screw by henry james um so that is and i don't know how i mean first you know this is a completely different topic and i won't stray for long but anybody who's watched flanagan's version of of shirley jackson's the haunting of hill house know that the book and the tv series are two different animals um you know emily new of the new yorker wasn't exactly pleased with it i think it was actually really good Mm -hmm. um i think that it's probably for for an adaption to screen i thought it was Mm -hmm. really good but i think that as far as a Mm -hmm. uh a series it's a very intriguing idea because the the art and the effects on that are amazing so i'm looking forward to seeing gugino again because i think that if she does come back for that that that's going to be really breathtaking
0: yeah that's exciting yeah you know it's funny while while um i was writing up my notes for this i was kind of flashing back and i was thinking about when we were talking about creature of the black Mm -hmm. lagoon and talking about the sea monk Mm -hmm. and the sea bishop um because they popped up in my mermaid research as well Mm -hmm. so i was thinking i I really like to imagine that the queen of the lair when she returns home to her brood Mm -hmm. relies on a advisory board of sea clergy Mm -hmm. because i really i think that would give a fun fun structure to mermaid society. Um but speaking of religion, I also want to talk about uh Atargatis. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. Yeah. So, Atargatis um was an ancient Syrian goddess first recorded around 1000 BC. Generally regarded as the first instance of a mermaid being recorded in human history. Um, Um, So the relevant part of her story for our purposes is that she, a goddess, fell in love with a mortal but accidentally killed him, which is, you know, a big accident, but I guess it's probably easy to squash your boyfriend like an ant when you're a goddess, so sorry, sorry to her. Anyway, she was so ashamed and horrified by what she had done that she jumped into a lake and tried to turn herself into a fish, as as one does, I guess. Um, But she was so beautiful and radiant and gorgeous and just perfect that the water couldn't hide her beauty so instead she kept her hot as fuck torso but gained the tail of a fish becoming what is generally regarded as the first mermaid now a couple of interesting facts about Ottergatus as relates to the queen of the lair first as we've said she was super duper gorgeous, um, to the point where she was later conflated with Aphrodite and Venus and Greek and Roman myth. Um, And while being hot is not the traditional siren song, it sometimes does the job. And we know that our movie mermaid certainly had magnetic attraction even when she wasn't singing. So there's parallel one. Then two, we have the fact that Aragades was viewed as a protector of her people. Now in her case, those were humans, but the queen of the lair was certainly a protector of her people, or people, as it may be And then third, mm-hmm. Otter Goddess Was a symbol mm-hmm. of fertility Which is especially get- interesting Given the old where's the mermaid Vag mm-hmm. problem um, mm-hmm. that she-creature And the lighthouse both so creatively tackled mm-hmm. um, But you can't mm-hmm. Deny that the queen of the lair was Exceptionally fertile So much so that she can apparently Impregnate someone without copulation So it's a, uh, I liked the the Parallels to this, <laughs> to the old Kind of the most ancestral mermaid <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like somebody did some research so which i'm, I'm happy they about They wanted
1: the kids but w- but we're too lazy to have the sex this earlier really- i admire that <laughs> bravo bravo very, very i know like mermaids, what an innovation right.
0: in asexual right. reproduction just, <laughs> look we don't need to talk to each other or be is the it same asexual room. i don't right. know we don't,
2: we don't need to talk No, to we
0: ourselves. just imagine if sex could happen just through meaningful looks through glass it would really change yeah, I things mean,
1: <laughs> i mean all the things that would accidentally get impregnated though like, like all the <laughs> things that i stare at meaningfully through glass like yeah
0: yeah, I'm really frames, thinking about pastries in the bakery things,
1: window. Uh, books, mm. my, my, ma- oh my gosh, my <laughs> laptop. <laughs> just, we'd have no. six or seven kids together. My wife actually calls my laptop my second wife, so, you know, <laughs> yeah, It Just me, Yeah, yeah, that, fork. that, may,
0: that tracks. Yeah, so, you know. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the biology, though, I had some definite biological questions about this movie. Aside. Let's just put the the touchless copulation aside for a minute. Um, so, my questions are first, can mermaids breed amongst themselves? Because I was going to say no initially because they're all female as far as we see in the movie. But clearly that, you know, female on female breeding did not stop the queen of the lair in this movie. So, typically hybrids between two species are sterile, meaning that the human mermaid babies would also be sterile. So then if that's the case, do they have a societal structure like bees? Are all the offspring sterile and do they depend on one fertile queen to reproduce? And I feel like they never adequately explained the importance of the queen of the lair in the movie versus all the other mermaids, but maybe that's it? Maybe she's the queen bee and the only one that makes babies, I don't know, but I really mostly am bring this up just because I enjoy thinking about mermaids as bees.
1: So maybe <laughs> maybe Carla Gugino knocked up Hannah Sims character then. Like maybe she maybe it was an exchange. Maybe she gave Carla one baby, and maybe Carla gave Hannah many babies.
0: Oh, that would be exciting. I mean that but, would be very In which fun. case, Carla
1: definitely got the better end of the deal. <laughs> <laughs> so.
0: Yeah, I mean, I just assumed that that little girl would suddenly hear the sea of well, Colin one day once anybody, she grew up and grew her teeth in. If anybody's ever watched True but...
1: Blood when the fairies mate, that is, that is a moment. Uh, yeah.
0: Yeah, so the... The other thing that I was really sitting with and reflecting on after watching both of these, and particularly in context with each other, is that these are both two very queer movies with a lot of homoerotic subtext and also blatantly gay content, but they read very differently, or I guess watch very differently. So right off the bat, both movies, I just want to say, as far as I can tell, are written, directed, and starring straight people and ownership of straight storytellers over queer stories is a much bigger issue to discuss, but it's safe to say that both of these movies are being told from a straight perspective, particularly a straight male perspective in the case of the writers and directors, and that does not serve both of them equally. So first I want to touch on um, She-Creature, because while I, of course, can't say that I didn't enjoy the presence of a sapphic mermaid, the relationship between Lily and the mermaid was admittedly not the sweet love story I may have projected onto it during the Um, watch-along. She-Creature feels like a queer story in the same way that it feels as a woman to watch lesbian porn that is directed for and by men. Agreed. technically they're having sex but what they're doing is not for either of their own benefits you know <laughs> she creature hits that kind of lesbian will they won't they moment that was risque back in 2001 I'm sorry, yeah i
1: want to i want to interrupt i want to interject here i want to say that it yeah. doesn't look like girl-on-girl porn that was directed by men for for men but there is pornography where it's girl-on-girl directed by women and i just want to say that as someone who's viewed quite a bit in his lifetime that had a woman directed this i think it would have been a very different um a very different oh, end product yeah yes, and that's just, yes. just saying that
0: no like i would treasure this movie made by a queer mm-hmm. woman yeah. like would be incredible she could have
1: turned that knife um, way slower and way more fucked up yeah
0: mm-hmm, I'm sure mhm yeah Big agree. Yeah, because, like I was saying, the she-creature, I think, hits the lesbian will-they-won't-they moments that were risque back in 2001, but it doesn't actually engage with the relationship between the two women in any meaningful way. (laughs) Meanwhile, The Lighthouse, I think, is much more self-aware about the male gaze and uses it to its own advantage as a framing device to talk about masculinity. So you could talk for hours about the homoeroticism in The Lighthouse and many people have in lots of great articles, including the article um, called He Sort of Wants a Daddy, Decoding the Homoeroticism in the Lighthouse, written by Matthew Jacobs for HuffPost, which is a full breakdown of the gay themes in the movie with an interview with Robert Eggers, Robert Pattinson and Willem Dafoe, which is delightful. All of them cheerfully acknowledge the abundance of gay themes in the movie, but Eggers is pretty insistent on leaving things up to the viewer and never giving a clear yes or no on questions of backstory, sexuality, what's in the light, you know, most of the movie. Now, as far as I can tell, that is not a new trait for him, and it's certainly not a new take for a creative to have, and I don't fault him for it, but it also in this specific sense to me does feel like a bit of a cop-out to write one of the gayest movies i've ever seen and then just say might they love men perhaps but i'll never say
1: i do have one thing that i Mm -hmm. feel which is that when we look at edgar Allan poe we're talking about the person who created the unreliable narrator you know that's who we're talking Mm -hmm. about we're talking about and this is based upon very loosely this is based upon the work of edgar Allan poe And I'm sorry, but the one thing that I would say is, when you say to me, I'm going to do an Edgar Allan Poe story, I already know. I have to buckle up, and I'm going in for an unreliable narrator (laughs) piece. I I can compare this to another film from 2004 called Cthulhu, uh, which was a Lovecraftian uh, love story between two gay men. It really should have been called Dagon's Birdcage, but um, it was a... (laughs) take on the shadow of over in's mouth if the protagonist uh, had been homosexual it's about the horror of being homosexual and and trying to be forced into pretending to be straight mm-hmm. so what happens is there's a son who comes back home uh, has a father who's basically like a cult leader in the town for cthulhu and his father's trying to tell mm-hmm. him how you know, Even Christian beliefs uh, you know, are somehow connected to the belief in Dagon, and uh, the son just can't deal with his father. He, he basically comes home just because his mother died and just wants to bury his mother and get on with his life. And his mother felt like the only one who really understood him. And he was a, a closet homosexual, then he left town you know, got to start over his life. And he actually said to his father, you know, I should thank you. I owe all my success to the distance we put between each other. And what he ended up doing is, uh, he had a, a, a male love interest in the town, uh, who he was best friends with, but he never really explored that. But it felt like both men were interested in exploring that, but they never got to. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, more Lovecraftian things happen. The man blacks out. And, uh, he wakes up and it's more or less revealed over the course of the film that he was basically raped uh to make another to make a baby Mm. and then at the end of the movie he's forced to kill his Mm. his the man he loves uh for his god right basically being and the thing that i that I, i you know back then i thought it was a terrible film but the older it gets i actually thought you know what this is a really amazing commentary on being forced to fit into a cis white male world. This is actually, Mm -hmm. that was it to a T. The older I got, the more relevant the film became. Um, But I I do feel that Cthulhu from 2004 is probably, you know, in answer to to criticism on Eggers for not completely exploring it. I would say that whereas Lovecraft is overly detailed, uh edgar Allan poe is always somebody who you'll be analyzing for decades to come i mean it the black the black yeah. cat is a good example of that it wasn't until the 90s that a feminist actually point out that the story of the black cat makes a shit ton more sense if you pr- replace the word cat with the word wife you know it's just like mm-hmm. it's just one of those things mm-hmm. right so.
0: No, I mean, I agree with you because the the thing that mm-hmm. I thought was really a strength in the mm-hmm. lighthouse was how well I think they tackled some, some of the tos- toxic aspects of masculinity, mm-hmm. which Defoe talks about a lot in his interviews. Um, and I think that distinctly correlates with the repression mm-hmm. of emotion, of sexuality and of communication, you know, among other things that are so central to the movie. And I think it kind of comes back to the thing we joked about a bit while we were talking about it, where we said, you know, if it was women in the lighthouse, we would just have knitted a sweater and done a puzzle, and there would have been no problem. I want to go back
1: to that but after, th- but yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> no, but I think Defoe pretty accurately sussed out that most of the char- most of the problems that the characters have on the island are because of the things that they are conditioned to repress. Yes. So I think that that's that to me was the really great part of kind of invoking the power of the male gaze to talk about what I think are pretty uniquely male issues in American society. It's the problems society. with the male gaze. That's the, actually it. It's, it's yeah, the male it's, gaze. And you know what's right. funny? It's
1: a lighthouse, right? What 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 better mm-hmm. instrument, right, than that mm-hmm. lens? Um, yeah, then the, yeah, you're talking about a magnifying lens. So basically, yeah, it's the same kind of idea. You're looking at the male gaze and it's like, you know what? There are some problems in that case. You know, it's got some splinters in it that need some removing. So, yeah, I, I definitely mm-hmm. think it was um pretty amazing. And and there's just these moments where you're watching it. And um the thing that I love about it is that it's not so overt that you don't still have a story there. You know, it's not. Oh, yeah. There's, there's just this amazing story that's mixed into all of it that is definitely reminiscent of. Uh, the Telltale Heart or The Black Cat, where you just have mm-hmm. no idea what the hell is going
0: yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, there's a great quote from from Eggers, which is in a, a, a Polygon interview mm-hmm. with Karen Hahn, where he said, I don't want to make a movie about a magical lighthouse. I want to make a movie about someone who's fucking crazy. And like, when you're talking about the unreliable narrator and when you're talking about the magical lighthouse, like, it all really just comes around full circle. <laughs> it's, I think it's a movie with a lot of self-awareness about exactly what it's doing, you know? <laughs>
1: If you dug this movie and collect horror art, I just want to pop in and say I highly recommend checking out Betty Jiang's illustration. We're going to post a link to that below. It's mm. an illustration of Thomas Howard, which I'll uh, probably <clears throat> can convert into a magic card later on for my own collection. <laughs> it's going to die a <laughs> terrible death. Just.
0: Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, before we dive too much into the mm. plot of The Lighthouse, I I just want to pull another quote from that that Karen Hahn mm-hmm. article for Polygon, because it's another Eggers quote that is... Just my favorite, because I I already talked about the seagulls and the watch-along, but of course I'm going to talk about them again. Um, Surprise, surprise. So the quote from him reads, But Christopher Columbus, who is is an executive producer on the movie, contacted his owls from Harry Potter, who knew about three English seagulls named Lady, Tramp, and Johnny, that were incredibly well-trained. My understanding is that they were rescued and sort of fostered up by human beings and couldn't survive in the wild any longer. Training them and giving them activities to do, it kind of gives them a will to live. They weren't these mean, nasty, horrible seagulls that we all know and fear. They were really lovely and so smart it's a pleasure to work with seagulls who knew and my god there are so many things in this quote that delight me right off the bat the fact that he didn't say contacted people about owls he said he contacted his owls from harry potter (laughs) as if it's like hey owls do you know some other birds
1: I know this guy on a telephone pole at the end of town. He used to work in Twin Peaks, (laughs) but uh, he fucked off. (laughs) The the aesthetics of that film. I I mean, well, yeah, I think in case anybody hasn't taken this away or anybody hasn't been told this yet, if you're out at sea, hell, just as a general rule, it's not just like sea lore, but just in general. Don't fuck with seabirds. Like, there's a very famous poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge called The Rime of the Ancient Mariner. And that whole long-ass poem takes place because somebody fucking shoots a bird called an albatross. Leave the albatross alone. Leave the seagull alone. So leave the seahawks alone. Leave the American bald eagle alone. You know what? Just look down. You see bird feathers? Just fuck off, alright? And you'll be fine. But like, if this film has taught anything, it's leave the bird alone for those who are confused see kevin hart's recollection on what happened when he messed with an ostrich yeah um seabirds are just things where in in terms of like mythology we don't mess with seabirds so
0: Yeah, you know, it, it, this movie did really validate me because, like, I'm somebody that's, I'm from a seaside town and people, I think, who live near the coast and, you know, at least in areas with seagulls tend to despise them because they are wily little fuckers, mm-hmm. but, like, I've always had a real soft spot for them. Like, they, they know what they're doing and nothing gets in their way. And I appreciate that. There's, a, there's just a sheer pig-headed tenacity about a seagull that really jives with me. Like, I like them a lot. <laughs>
1: But yeah, again, don't mess with the seagull, though, because they didn't do anything wrong. They're just there being a seagull. That's the seagull's home. You know, it's it's yeah. flying above my ship. Let me shoot it. No, it lives in the sky. <laughs> nope. Nope.
0: You are in its home, not your own. The whole world is the seagull's home, and you're just That's living right. in it. <laughs>
1: Also, big props to Nash Point Lighthouse for giving us a foghorn that would make any Nine Inch Nails or Tom Waits fan cringe in approval. could wake up to that every morning and then beat the shit out of whoever thought it was funny to wake me up that way. Gonna probably try it on my iPod in a couple of weeks, so if I come back with black and blues, you'll know who gave it to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, we can't really talk about the lighthouse without talking about the Small's lighthouse tragedy. Now, It's very loosely inspired by this, but the inspiration is there, and you'll see why. Because it's fucked! Um, (laughs) The Smalls Lighthouse is built on a big chunk of rock, appropriately called the Smalls, about 20 miles off the western coast of Wales. The original tower was finished in 1776, but there have been two lighthouses that have had the name because it had to be fully rebuilt once in its history of continual disaster. But the big tragedy that everyone means when they say Smalls Lighthouse Tragedy happened as so. In 1801, the duo of Thomas Howell and Thomas Griffith was sent out to man Small's Lighthouse, and yes, this is a tale of two Thomases, just like in The Lighthouse. So, Howell and Griffith were, uh, not the best of friends. It's judged by their frequent public arguments. I don't know who thought it was a good idea to pair them up for an insufferably long isolation period, but they made a hell of a choice when they signed off on that form. So the pair is put out on their little rock island, having just a grand old time, I'm sure, when Thomas Griffith kicks the bucket. Now, the exact nature of his death is unclear. It's a little muddled in the history. The most commonly listed cause of death I found was, quote, freak accident, um, which truly could mean anything if the real Smalls Lighthouse was as much of a hellhole as its fictionalized counterpart. Um, Some accounts insist that Griffiths survived weeks of suffering, whether through illness or because of the aforementioned freak accident, before he succumbed to his ailment and finally died. And that version does seem to amp up the drama a little bit, because Howell is supposed to have cared for him, and light distress signals throughout his nemesis' suffering, and of course no one came. But the whole thing does make him seem a little more noble, which is of course why there was nothing so tender to be found in the lighthouse. But Griffith is very dead, and Howell is left with a problem, because under better circumstances he apparently would normally just huck the corpse into the sea. Which, like, I do get for practical reasons. I I do recognize that burials at sea exist. But the mental imagery of him just chucking his only companion into the waves and watching him bob away is really captivating. Yeah. Oh well, yeah. Frenemy, we'll say. (laughs) We'll we'll go into (laughs) it. (laughs) So, so anyway, Howell knows that everyone else knows that the two of them were kings of bickering, so he's naturally worried that he'll be under suspicion, and that that body is his proof that it's not murder, so he has to keep the body. Now... Before I continue, I just want to say that I understand there probably wasn't a wealth of great locations to choose from to keep said body. I mean, you don't want a body rotting in the house. That's nasty. You don't want to just leave it outside for the animals and the elements to wear away at. I get it. But his solution is, I would say, a little unconventional. This poor man tries his very best to build a makeshift coffin out of whatever he could find lying around. And then he lashes the coffin to a shelf on the outside of the lighthouse, presumably to keep a close eye on it? Reasoning is unclear, but that was Howell's plan, and I'm not going to talk any more shit about it because the poor guy suffered enough. So, Howell is now left alone, doing a two-man job, doing his darndest to keep the lighthouse lit, while his dearest frenemy is beginning to rot right outside the wall. And, of course, the weather, as it always does in these type of stories, takes a turn for the worse. The storms start, the rough winds hit the island, and Howell was, I'm sure, not a carpenter, so before long, the coffin he made starts falling apart. As the coffin falls apart, Griffith's arm flops out of the box and right into the view of one of the windows of the hut where Howell lived. So, the winds keep raging, and in a horrifying turn of events, they buffet the arm just so to make it seem like Griffith's corpse is beckoning to howl, which is, to put it mildly, completely fucked up! (laughs) And...
1: (laughs) Hey, buddy. I'm sure... Come with me. Come with me, buddy. Come on. Come on. on. Jump on on the rocks.
0: Come on to the other side. (laughs) Fuck you. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> to yeah so I'm-, <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one singing it. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm sure Howell is running purely on survival instinct alone, because this man managed to keep the lighthouse lit and not throw himself into the fucking sea until his relief finally arrived. But, unsurprisingly, he was reportedly unrecognizable to his friends after the harrowing events, which seems very fair. And I would say I hope he got therapy, but it was 1801 and therapy was shit, so maybe I hope he didn't. I hope he got Um,
1: really, really drunk ever after. (laughs)
0: I'm sure he was not sober for the rest of his life. Now, to me, the greatest part of this horrendous nightmare comes in the government response to the incident. Because they looked at the reports and they were like, wow, man, that's fucked up, as they probably should have. They then decided that the problem lay in having only two people man the lighthouse, which does seem like a pretty glaring error. Their solution? Change British Lighthouse policy, so now Lighthouse teams must have three people on them, because surely nothing
1: will go <laughs> Spoiler wrong Spoiler alert, some motherfuckers disappeared <laughs> years later when they tried that <laughs> shit.
0: <laughs> oh yeah, over and over again, because while this is the story that directly relates to our movie, I just briefly need to plug in That, of course, is not enough tragedy for one lighthouse. Oh, no. (laughs) Because in 1831, it was time for another storm from hell. And one of the waves that hit the smalls was so large that it somehow tore the floor out of the keeper's room and slammed it into the ceiling, creating a sandwich of everything between said floor and ceiling, which meant that all of the keepers were forced into a tsunami-fueled panini press. And... One of the keepers died from the traumatic injuries. The two others survived, but were severely injured. And did you see exactly how easy it was for that number of keepers to fall immediately back to two? The bad number? The bad number? I mean, I think it was the 1980s when British lighthouses started being robotically controlled, which is a saving grace, I'm sure. But wow, we've learned a lot of fucked up shit about lighthouses today.
1: And if you're Um, an American, see also Boone Island, which I first discovered as a Ralph Lauren collection for wallpaper patterns. (laughs) I remember looking at it and going, "Wow, that's really bleak," and and that's probably the most bleak pattern I've ever seen. I wonder. Went home, wiki it, read it. Oh no, don't wonder no more. That's some fucked up shit. Lots of yeah. It's like oh yeah, it's uh it's one of the one of the lighthouses that's furthest out to sea. Uh, it's no longer manned now. It's also I think it's solar operated. Uh, lots of Good. ships crashed on it uh one guy did uh try to leave his wife the only time and we'll come back to this the only time that a keeper tried to leave the house uh he died and then his wife went insane <laughs> waiting for him to come back that is the only o- one of the only times i have a woman going insane on the rock i just want to say yeah. in terms of the elements i don't want to be sexist but i'm going to give credit where credits due. When it comes to The Rock and being alone on a lighthouse, no one holds a candle to women. Men crack on The Rock like dove eggs. Because after watching The Lighthouse, I sat down and thought, you know, I'm going to go read about lighthouses and go see what how many other tragedies I could find. I found plenty of other tragedies. Plenty. I, th- I think I found about 20 stories about lighthouses where... There was a disappearance, murder-suicide, uh, drowning, um, su- but, or just, just regular suicide, um, and I did a count, and not a single one of the people who was uh, a murderer or who, who lost it was a woman. And I would like to (laughs) mirror that with the fact that there was research. In fact, there is a fantastic piece of work here. I believe it's called uh, Women Who Kept the Lights, an Illustrated History of Female Lighthouse Keepers by J. Candice Clifford and Mary Louise Clifford. Um, That's a fantastic illustration of the lives of women uh, uh, in America who were lighthouse keepers. And you can also Google, you can wiki, uh tons of it's funny you can wiki the female wikis and uh there were tons of female wikis who were who were lighthouse keepers into their old age and nothing ever happened but for for some reason it's always guys who crack on the rock i just want to say women go out the same distance um, they, it's not that there aren't men who haven't come back in one piece. There's tons of men who came back in, in one piece. But whenever someone cracks, it's always a guy. So far, it's never yeah. been a woman.
0: Yeah, we're coming coming right back to repression. Right. Like, it is a generalization, but I I really think women are typically better conditioned to be able to sit with our own thoughts and feelings.
1: Um. Feelings, most of all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I've I've actually noticed mm-hmm. that as a guy. Like, if you watch if you watch a woman walk around you'll see pacing but there'll be feeling but if a guy walks around i've seen that too men will be muttering to themselves i should have done this you know i always think of jack sparrow when he's in david Jones' locker well then we shall have a wonderful garden party and he is not invited and you're like whoa (laughs) (laughs) you have officially gone to the moon (laughs) Yeah.
0: yeah yeah So obviously the actual plot of The Lighthouse bears very little resemblance to The smallest Lighthouse Mm. tragedy, but Eggers did credit it as inspiration. Mm. It was kind of a jumping-off point for the start of the lighthouse scripting process um but if you want an actual movie about the smalls lighthouse tragedy there have been multiple including a movie that i almost watched by accident also called the lighthouse from 2016 directed by chris crow there's also a radio play a chamber opera and a multitude of blog posts and podcasts so just feel free to wet your grisly r- whistle if you want
1: We'll <laughs> post links
0: People really—they ca- cater to
1: you, yeah,
2: yeah.
1: There's, there's We'll post links. We'll post links to the uh, to the small house lighthouse, the artwork, and uh, you know even that Ralph Lauren pattern in okay? case so you guys are you know looking for something at home <laughs> that really says, you know, bleak and uh, what the fuck. So yeah. <laughs> mhm, mhm,
0: yeah. Speaking of bleak and what the fuck, you want to talk about Edgar Allan Poe for a minute? I mean,
1: <laughs> so here was a guy who basically died. On the day that he died, he came out wearing somebody else's clothes. Um, had a lot of bruises on his body and and cried out, God save my poor soul, you know. Um What a man had a lot of had a, a gambling man. and alcohol addiction at that point in his life. Um, varying accounts of how he died. One of the one of the leading uh testimonials was uh, police brutality, uh following an inability to pay a gambling wager. That was a fun one.
0: <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the the reason, of course, that I bring up Poe is, like we mentioned before, his piece um, that The Lighthouse came from um, that was a unfinished short story 1849 the year he died because he wrote almost none of it and promptly died Um, the story is very short I cannot emphasize it enough the whole thing is 748 words long and I read it in about three minutes Um, so no judgment to him because he died he was trying his best but it's a very easy Google Google search if you want to read it and this fragment is three diary diary entries that record the thoughts of a writer plagued by society who believes that the solution to is to find ultimate solitude by working a lighthouse alone and finally finding the freedom he needs to write his masterpiece clearly the protagonist did not watch the lighthouse before making this decision because it seems like that <laughs> workload does not lead leave enough time to write a novel but that's it that's the whole you know- story there are the vaguest implications that things will get grim because, you know, it's a Poe story, but the horror is left to the imagination of the reader. But apparently Eggers and Eggers took that and ran with it because this was, this was kind of one of the first foundational pieces. It was like this, a small lighthouse, those kinds of things that were like, well, what if we made a whole story, you know? <laughs>
1: Although there is, a, you know, I would like to counterbalance that with a quote from an earlier yeah. author, uh, John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost. Uh, When speaking as Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, before she went off on her own and met the snake at the tree, she said, sometimes solitude is the best society. And you want to know something? (laughs) There are days I completely agree with her as both a writer and a human being. Solitude is sometimes the best society. Although I think I am not
0: going to disagree. I think
1: being by a tree in a garden is a little bit easier than being on a fucking rocky lighthouse.
0: Yeah. Precisely, like, I am the first person who craves isolation, but I'm not bold enough to try to work an entire lighthouse at the same time. If I'm going to go for isolation, I want everything tied up in a neat little bow so I have time to just chill the fuck out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I,
1: I think it would have been, like, for me, I think I would have been okay with isolation with something mm-hmm. like, you know... Um being on a gigantic spaceship and being able to talk to the robotic mm-hmm. bartender that would be enough for me right? oh hell yeah but like if someone was like hey mona you want to be in like like in a five by five capsule or something and we'll just shoot you out of the atmosphere mm-hmm. and you'll just hang there for god knows how long no not for
0: mm-hmm. me and also do intense physical labor the right. whole time
1: <laughs> with what can only be the most monotonous droning soundtrack ever yeah
2: <laughs>
0: Yeah, yeah. I still, just the audio of this of of the lighthouse was a real masterpiece of foley work. Just the constant horror right. <laughs> like, really something to Sounds behold. Sounds like a
1: whale that's having bowel <laughs> movement problems. Like that fucking foghorn. Really, I mean, I just wonder. You want to say like, that's the thing I sat and wondered about for a while. I was like how did they find that particular foghorn like did 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 the eggers brothers know. know did they just know or did they ask a guy maybe one of the fucking owls was like hey you know what i know this <laughs> seagull. i don't know about like seagulls i don't know every seagull i don't know a seagull is missing his eye but i know this one guy this one seagull who just shit himself when he heard this foghorn you gotta hear this thing and then that's how they picked the foghorn because I
0: Yeah, I like to think that it was yeah, I like to think that it was like an audition reel process, like the way that like a casting director sits in a room and hears five hundred auditions, that they just sat there and listened to five hundred lighthouse and recordings and were like, No, 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 give that one a call back. No, no, too high pitched, no, no, what even is that? That's not a lighthouse no okay maybe no.
1: <laughs> That's a penguin shitting in a bucket next door. Let's go. Where else you got? Yeah, but you know something? I I actually sat and I thought, well, what would that process be like? Because even that, that would inspire thoughts of suicide and aggression in me already if I had to do that job all fucking day long.
0: I mean, they had to work on brand. (laughs) They had to they had to really get in the right headspace, and that's what it took in my you know in my own headcanon for this movie's production.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I will say it was definitely it was very nice to have. uh, New editions of sea shanties, you know. Me- mm. Yeah, that was that was some good stuff. All the all the new sea shanties that one can take away from the lighthouse if one slows down and listens to the 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 um, the lyrics and then googles them. You know, um, "Doodle Let Me Go" from. Uh,
0: As we know, the two of us are both both fans of a good sea shanty, uh-huh. and we love to find one. <laughs> yeah is that most of the reason that i played assassin's creed black flag yes it is yes it is
1: (laughs) i believe it's a.l lloyd yeah a.l lloyd saying doodle let me go or that version of doodle let me go because we all know sea shanties have about a billion and one people who cover them one day axis and i will actually redo the words to uh spanish ladies we will make it dirtier and more fun and uh
0: yeah just uh just wait you know 2028 we'll release our uh, access and moaner sea shanty album um all all rewritten semi-originals sung and performed by us of completely course hammered um just completely yep yep yeah if you just, uh, if you donate wait. to the it's patreon
1: coming. you'll get to hear all the vomiting of chucking noises <laughs> that we'll make <laughs> oh my god we've had alcohol yeah porcelain. if we ever
0: start a patreon <laughs> that will be our patreon camp <laughs> listen to us fucked up and singing sea shanties (laughs) 10 bucks a month
1: (laughs) i bet people would pay
0: (laughs) you know i i have accepted money for worse so (laughs) so yeah Uh, yeah. oh things to look forward to Well, well if if we're talking more about inspiration for the movie i also want to touch on some Visual art, uh, Defoe's marine godly look is pulled from Albrecht Dürer's Sea Monster, um, which is a a fun piece of art, and his nude power stance and lighthouse laser eyes over Pattinson is from Sasha Schneider's Hypnosis. And fun fact, Dürer is theorized to be bisexual or gay, historically. Schneider was big gay, with a beautiful Italian boyfriend who traveled through the mountains with him before he went back to Germany and started a bodybuilding institute where many of his models trained. And he really took advantage, painted many a nude man. But I think it's fitting that Eggers took inspiration from queer artists for his very queer film. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, and uh, there's also just a whole wealth of, of Greek myth to talk about as well. Yeah. <laughs> you, you ready to hear about Prometheus?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, so. It's not just let's, a shitty prequel
1: to Alien. <laughs>
0: It's not. It's not. There's There is lore. because So a lot of people have, have called the lighthouse a Promethean story, which is very yeah. accurate, but let's talk about what that actually means. So there are many incarnations of the story of Prometheus. The first that we have a record of goes back to Hesiod's Theogony, written between 507 and 616, which fuck me, I don't know how to say a year that doesn't have a one. It's not in the thousands. It feels wrong. Um, but Probably the most popular version comes from Aeschylus's Prometheus Bound, but the essence of the story goes something like this. Our main man, Prometheus, is a titan, one of the forefathers of the Olympian gods, and generally a pretty chill dude. Important things to know about Prometheus. He's got a soft spot for humans, probably because he sculpted us out of clay like we were little Playmobil figurines, and then he looked at us like a child who's just been presented with an ant farm or sea monkeys, and he said, Nice the record, this is of course blatant editorializing, but we're having fun here. So he's also got a sense of humor. He loves a good goof, especially one that takes people that are too big for their britches down a peg or two. And he's most importantly an intellectual, usually viewed as the guy who figured out human arts and sciences and then handed them to us like a dad giving his kid a toy hammer that despite being made of plastic can still do a surprising amount of damage and saying, have at it, kiddo. So for the part of the story that is relevant to us, this big brained daddy of humanity played a little prank and then carried out a little caper. The original story and the most fun version, in my opinion, is that Prometheus went to Zeus at dinner and was like, hey Zeus, which big piece of meat would you like for your dinner? And then he shows him one big, bulging, nasty ox stomach and one thing of, quote, glistening fat, the appeal of which is lost on me, but maybe this makes sense if you're really into lard. So Zeus, being a deep thinker, says, duh, give me the big fatty one little does he know that Prometheus has filled up the fat with a big pile of bones, whereas the actual tasty meat was hidden inside the ugly ox stomach. Zeus could have taken this as a fun lesson about not judging meats based on their appearances, but he is a petty, petty bastard. So when humans hear about Zeus's choice and start offering him bones as sacrifice, mm-hmm. Zeus says, fuck all y'all, and takes away their fire. Prometheus, who is seeming more and more like a solid dude to me at this point, sees this and goes, ah shit, Zeus always takes the joke too far, but I don't want my little human farm to pay for my questionable joke. So he sneaks around, steals the fire right back from Zeus, dusts it off, and hands it back to humanity like a pacifier that we dropped on the floor. Now, let's do a pros and cons breakdown of this decision. So pros, this is just so good for humans. We cook our meat, we stay warm, we eventually invent bombs and stuff, and things are generally very good for us. Cons, did I mention that Zeus is a petty bastard? (laughs) Because Zeus is an incredibly petty bastard, and he does not appreciate being made a fool of twice in one day. So Zeus decides that the most effective way to flip the bird to Prometheus would in fact be to chain him to a big old rock and have an eagle come eat his liver out every day, while he regrew it every night for all eternity. What fun. No, if you listen to the dad hopeful ever. myths, yeah, yeah, best guy. If you listen to the hopeful myths, Prometheus is eventually freed by Heracles, but I think we can all go ahead and assume that he had a really fucking bad time up until that <laughs> point. Um <laughs> So so that is the, the classic tale of Prometheus. But now let's talk about The Lighthouse and another dude that had an incredibly bad time. So our good pal Thomas Howard, a.k.a. Robert Pattinson, spends the entire movie becoming more and more obsessed with a blazing, fiery light that is just outside of his reach. He is our Prometheus. Our other good pal, Thomas Wake, a.k.a. Willem Dafoe, is way too into his blazing, fiery light, and he surely will not let anyone take it he's our Zeus figure. Pattinson finally goes for gold and says a very violent fuck you to Defoe before he finally gets what he wants and ever so briefly gets to capture the fiery light as his own, but he immediately receives his comeuppance, which seems to be divinely implemented, and the movie ends with him weak and limp on a rock having his guts eaten by a seagull, which should hopefully sound familiar if you listen to me talk for the past five minutes. So so the story of Prometheus was later romanticized by a lot of people, including um, especially in the romantic era as shown by Mary Shelley subtitling Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus, and Percy Shelley writing the four-act, entirely original and not-at-all derivative drama Prometheus Unbound, Um, and to that I say Who Among Us has not romanticized Robert Pattinson at some point? But it is a hell of a lot harder to romanticize The Lighthouse, probably for multiple reasons, but I would say that the the top two are probably that our our Zeus figure farts too much, and that our Prometheus has no noble cause. The reason that the original Prometheus is an endearing figure is that he's doing his shenanigans on behalf of humanity, meanwhile movie R-Pats is losing his mind and building an obsession. And I mean, it's not like there's anyone else on this island that he could be trying to help out, except maybe the seagulls, but we know how he feels about that. But this is a movie that is determined to have no heroes. Instead, we get ignoble gods and self-centered protagonists. Which is very Greek. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's It took a, a Greek tragedy and made it an even more Greek tragedy, really. Um, and one brief note... Defoe, in addition to being a Zeus figure, he also uses the uh, visual and plot iconography of Proteus, another Greek figure, um, which is especially apt given his their well, both of their proclivities for stories, warnings, and superstitions, and his very sea god transformations. But there's of course a wealth of more more Greek literature we could dive into, but I think that's that's, that's enough of a history for today.
1: <laughs> and I think that's really what I liked most about the film was that mm-hmm. it was the first film I'd mm-hmm. seen in a while where there was a lo- there wasn't really an overt Lovecraftian tone to it. And it was actually more mm-hmm. Poe. Because the first thing I thought when I yeah. saw Defoe holding Pattinson with those amazing beam eyes uh, was I thought of Bioshock. Mm. <laughs> You know, it was the first time I was was so happy because I was like, oh, thank God. We're not doing like a Call of Cthulhu thing. Because every time, (laughs) yeah, it's just one of those things where it's just like Call of Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu, Call of Cthulhu. Look, we liked it. It was great. It's been done. Unless like Ron Mm -hmm. Howard or Guillermo del Toro directs it, I don't want to hear about it again. You know, it's just one of those (laughs) things. But it was like, oh, good. It's nautical horror, but it's new nautical horror. You know? Yeah. I mean, the the, the only thing that I would have liked... Which is the thing that I, I dislike about you know David Lynch's films and, the, and noir in general, is I didn't like the fact that I didn't get to see what was in the lighthouse or I didn't get any kind of reveal because it, it's always it's a MacGuffin. It's a MacGuffin. It's a it's the same as uh, the suitcase with the golden light coming out of it in Pulp Fiction. Mm-hmm. But as an as a MacGuffin, I get that the the lighthouse was sort of driving the plot inadvertently. But I didn't really... Okay. I thought that there could have been just a little bit more added to that. But then I also understand yeah. it would have compromised his... Mm-hmm. Eh, I realize it would have compromised Eggers and... Well, the Eggers' you know, vision of turning it into a mm-hmm. unreliable narrator piece. I just wish we'd gotten a little bit yeah. more out of it for effect.
0: Yeah, I almost feel like... I mean, I know you're saying it's not a Lovecraftian thing, and I do agree with that. But I feel like the that little bit of storytelling is almost a Lovecraftian thing in which it's something that I think the filmmakers seem to have an awareness that anything that they put in the light is not going to be as horrifying as whatever our imagination can conjure. So it's, I think that's falling into daggers thing about trying to leave things to the unknown I, and make I, it
1: I normally agree with that. I just feel like there could have been more beauty to the light as well. I'm not saying that the lighthouse should have had a backstory and I'm not saying mm-hmm. that it should have been there should have been some sort of, you know, special effects prop inside of it. I think that there should have been more beauty out of the light because I didn't feel...
0: Yeah, I was just going to say that because, like, I feel like since we're relying on an unreliable narrator, you have to be transported into their vision of the world, kind of. And so I got that they were obsessed with the light but I never felt that obsession and the way they did. It was always a bit of an enigma to me. I think I could have, it would have been more effective if I was more transported and more convinced of the beauty and more convinced of why it mattered. Um, So that I can see is a a bit of a failing point. But I do think, yeah, no- Because the
1: mermaid was a nice touch, right? Like the mermaid was really, the Mm -hmm. mermaid was really awesome. The scrimshaw, the mermaid, the whole getting mindfucked thing, that was cute. But it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. It's like, well, if you're going to give me this lighthouse, you know, the thing about David Lynch films that make them successful to me is that when we're looking at something like his remake of Lost Highway or Mulholland Drive, there's a lot of beauty he throws in there, too. There's just this pure sex that's coming off of what whatever it is that he's throwing at you. And we don't get that from the gigantic phallus. And I get that. That could also be another statement about yeah, male toxicity and patriarchy but at the end of the day <laughs> you know your, your job as a creator is to the film not just to speak purely in metaphor you know your, your responsibility is to the story and to the viewer so I do feel like we were mm-hmm. missing just a little something but you know yeah no it's I can still understand an amazing that but I, I do
0: flashing back to yeah talking about how how aware this film is of Poe like I mean, so much of what we've talked about today is about the references that the movie kind of includes, and this is a movie that I think is so aware of its source material in a way that I I enjoy to the point where I mean, in some of the interviews, Robert Eggers seems a little chagrined about all of the things he's kind of pilfered from other artists. He's like, "Yeah, I, I know it's a little it's a little on the nose," but like, but you know, I think he treats things with a degree of yeah. reverence and an appreciation to the form that he's pulling from, and so it's it's a very very I think effective way of referencing things but also having reverence for things that you know are so instrumental to the form to the plot I think that's really well done throughout and it's something that it's fun it's fun to pick apart I enjoyed it
1: <laughs> well if you enjoyed this film uh and we sure did uh I would definitely recommend watching The Lighthouse with any any other you know noir black and white I mean we watched um a Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and I thought that would have also paired really well with The Lighthouse. Mm. Um, another one would be uh, Eraserhead from David Lynch. It's another really amazing black and white piece. Um, I, I actually feel that it's something where it's best to maintain the tone if you're going to keep the line up that way. Um, as far as uh, The She-Creature, um, I could think of about a million things you could probably pair it with. The thing, nice thing about, <laughs> about monster movies of that, particular caliber is that you can they mix pretty easily with other things yeah the masters of horror series uh from 2006 are a pretty good example i would take um pro-life which was uh directed by john carpenter and written by mick garris and i don't know pretty much anything else from the masters of horror series would work as well the washingtonians directed by peter medic and also written by mick garris and richard Cheesmar. uh Or it was also another fantastic pairing uh, that could go with uh, She Creature. Those of you who have been listening probably know that every month, Axis and I speak about uh, worthy cause that we want to talk about. Of course, we have been observing uh, news events. You might have noticed that we haven't done our COVID safe room special like we usually do. And that we didn't put up one for June and we haven't put up one for July. Um, we're probably going to put up one for August or September. I want to apologize mm. to everybody. I had some of my own issues, and I wasn't able to record as much as I would have liked to. Um, mm. So I take full responsibility for any of you who are upset that you didn't get more free content from us, you fucking cultures. <laughs> um, but yeah, we'll we'll stay tuned, and we'll be back for... Uh, in the meantime, you can stay tuned for the horror news with Ryan
2: Smith. I'm Ryan Ozzie Smith and I'm pleased to have had the opportunity to share the latest in lit news with you on The Late Night. Although Tales to Terrify is currently closed for paid submissions, they are open to flash fiction pieces up to 2,500 words. You can learn more at tales to terrifycom forward slash submissions. The Dark is an online magazine that's looking for fiction pieces from 2,000 to 6,000 words. Visit thedarkmagazine.com forward slash submission dash guidelines for more details. The Nightmares and Phantasms podcast is currently open to submissions of 1,000 to 6,000 words. For more information, visit lompublishing.com forward slash submission dash call. Finally, Space and Time magazine is taking ongoing one-line submissions for their monthly Exquisite Corpse Poetry Project. You can submit your line and vote on your favourite exquisite corpse of the quarter at spaceandtime.net. Please note that even though The Late Night does its best to bring horror authors the most up-to-date information for publication venues, it cannot guarantee that all the aforementioned information will remain valid. All submissions should be considered tentative and subject to change. If you're a magazine or press that's interested in having your submissions advertised on The Late Night, you can write to monalawrence at hotmail.com.
1: The Late Night, a horror podcast, is brought to you by Moner T. Lawrence. Find us at Monaria.com and The Late Night Pod on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.